0: So thank you, uh, Pierce and uh, Praise Team, for singing what I now say is my favorite uh, song. That is my favorite hymn. Now, granted, I may sing Amazing Grace tomorrow, and that will be my favorite hymn. But the thing that gets me, young people, that is a 250-plus-year-old song Written by Robert Robinson at the age of 23. I, I'm amazed that the words, if you have your Baptist hymnal there in a pew, I just looked it up, I think it's 18. It changes from year to year, one year. In fact, in one edition, David Sherry, Sherry, remember that? There's like two side by side. And you'd call out, play this one. You go, no, that's the wrong one. Play that one. So it, it changes a little bit through the years. The, the tune that it's set to. But uh, Robert was from a poor family. In fact, uh, his father died at an early age, aspiring to go to school in England. He's from a Norfolk area of of England, or Northwich, not Norfolk, Northwich. And um, he ended up getting sent to London and ran with some little rougher crowds and eventually was kind of not really sold or indentured, but basically placed in an apprenticeship to be a barber, a hairdresser. And uh, at the age of 17, he heard George Whitfield preach. Historians in the group read a little bit on George Whitfield, or Whitefield as it's spelled sometimes. Influenced by the Methodists, would also later be influenced by the Calvinists. His preaching ability uh, goes often unnoticed because probably the best orator in the late 1700s comes to the United States, uh, sanctuaries in the United States were not large enough to host the congregations that he would preach to. One a British actor said, if I could only say, oh, like George Whitfield says, oh, I would pay a hundred pounds. So, what a way to delivery, and, and Robert hears him preach at 17, talking about the terrible judgment that's coming, and his heart is so troubled for three years he struggles with having a relationship with Christ Jesus. At the age of twenty, he writes what will and says, Hey, I've decided to surrender my life to Christ. And then three more years later, he would write this hymn. I can echo those words so many times with a heart that's prone to wonder. I am a debtor to God's grace. And how many times have we sung that? We say, Here I lift my. And we haven't got a clue what he's talking about. Now, raise your hand if you truly know what Ebenezer means without reading that slide. Now, yeah, you went to some, some church school somewhere, didn't you? I know that school too. Yeah. Um, it, it is a word that we. It is a location in the Old Testament of a city. But we will find in 1 Samuel the 7th chapter that um, there's been a battle that God has defeated the Philistines and as a memorial, as a reminder of what God has done, of his help, Samuel lifts up a stone and calls it Ebenezer, a stone of help. And on this 20th anniversary, this memorial weekend to those who lost their their lives in 9-11, I, like you, probably tuned in to some of the TV shows, some of the live coverages of the different ceremonies that were remembering those lost. I especially saw one portion where uh, the names of almost 3,000 people are being read on the uh, 9-11 memorial. Names etched in stone as a reminder to say we've lost, but also we've come through that. And likewise, that's what this Ebenezer stone for us can be today, as a reminder of God's help along our journey. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me, please, to uh, 1 Samuel, the 7th chapter. But before we do that, I would like for us to listen to just a little song that bring some of this home and some of those memories that you saw yesterday and and i won't try to focus too much on it but i think it is important that we remember We remember the loss and we remember God's help today. Uh, the next slide, I think I have, I already have it up there. I was looking at the congregation, hadn't looked up to see it. Uh, actually, Brenda and Emma, and I think if Ginger's here, and Emily uh, were part of a uh, large group from O'Connor High School that went to, to New York in 2015 and visited uh, that memorial site. And you can just see the beginning of that first. Um, World Trade Center that's closest to the new uh, World Trade Center or World One Trade World, One World Trade Center uh, that has been rebuilt. Kind of like a, to me it's like a fist in the air to say we will not break. Uh, and I, I can remember the discussion when they were going to rebuild what should they rebuild them both? Should they rebuild something new? But it serves as that reminder of the loss but yet of the ability of a nation to come back together and as the world to come together uh, to uh, fight and combat terrorism. Um, If you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel, the seventh chapter, and if you are not an Old Testament scholar, and I'm not, I will just tell you that straight up. I I, uh, confess that I preach, and if you've been here six years, I probably have had more sermons out of the, there's no doubt, I've had more sermons out of the New Testament than I have had the Old Testament. But yet we can learn so much if we'll just take some of the verses at a time. So let me back you up to remind you that Samuel is this one who was given up by his mother who could not have a child and who eventually has a child and promises that she'll give him unto the Lord's service. He's there with Eli, and because Eli, remember, he had a couple boys, and they were not good, and they were having a lot of problems, and uh, God calls out to Samuel one night, and while well, he's sleeping, and you know Samuel gets up, runs into Eli, you know the story, and, and basically, he, Eli eventually says, hey, I think God is talking to you, go back, listen to what he has to say, and he uh, basically hears a prophecy that, and, and Samuel will become uh, one of our first prophets, if you will, post Moses. He will also become the last of the judges, if you have, prior to Saul becoming king, and he inherits a nation of of Christ, or excuse me, God's children, but yet they have been unfaithful. And uh, you start off even in chapter 4 of of this book, and and, uh, the Philistines have been having a battle. And, you know, the children of Israel said, hey, if we just go get the ark, you know, it's kind of like brushing off your Bible. If we just go brush off our Bibles and shake it out there, those Philistines will go away. Well, actually, they got defeated, and the Philistines took... The ark, and and they took it and put it in their pagan temple. And that's around about chapter, later part of chapter four, chapter five. And if you remember that story, they set it up next to their, uh, like, dragon type. idol and they get up the next morning and the, and the thing's fallen over and uh, they set up their pagan idol and the next day they get up and the thing's fallen over and it's broke off its arms and it's broke off its head and those guys said hey it's time to get rid of this uh, Jewish thing and, and let's take it back and they eventually take it back and then once again e- even when it comes into the town where we're into the Jewish town where it, it is to to stay for a while um Jews die because they have looked at it with kind of a, like, well, so what? You know, it came back. And eventually we pick up in chapter 7 where it is a set for about 20 years in relatively uh, peaceful uh, existence. And now the children of Israel have come to Samuel, their leader, their judge, their, their prophet, their preacher, if you will, and said, hey, we know we've done wrong. We hear these Philistines are just getting ready to come up here and battle us one more time. And what should we do? And he basically says, if you, if you will repent, if you'll, if you'll turn away from these idols, if you, if you will come back to God and, and be sincere in your, your faith, he will do something for us. And uh, As they rallied together, the Philistines heard that there was going to be like this revival, if you will. And they decided that'd be a great opportunity to attack them. And as they're uh, getting ready for that attack, God's voice speaks. In my mind, it's him speaking, and thunder scares them so bad and disorganizes them so bad that the uh, children of Israel run out, attack them, basically... uh, slaughter them and run them out of the country. And the end of that chapter says they didn't come back and to invade their country again. So let's just pick up on this one verse. And I'll read it actually from this. I think I can see it from here. Then Samuel, this is after that battle has happened, took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shin. Both of those cities. There are there are some scholarly uh, works that say where Mitzpah is. Shin, they're not really sure where it is. And he named it Ebenezer saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. King James says, hitherto. Let's pray. Father, thus far, until now, hitherto, you have been our help. And you continue to be our help. If we will only do what your children did that day so many years ago turn from the wickedness of our ways, turn from those things that compete for our faith and for our love and for our allegiance and look to you. Confess that sin. Gather together and seek you. So today in this hour, we ask you to speak to our hearts. Help us to consider the Ebenezer that we lift up for the world in which we live. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just begin. This is a two-pointer today. And say the first one is Ebenezer moments. If we understand the word Ebenezer to mean stone of help, and in Samuel's intent in verse 12, we are called, I believe, to remember our Ebenezer moments. You say, okay, well, what's an Ebenezer moment? That's the time when God has changed a bad situation in your life around so quickly that it almost blows your mind. Or perhaps it doesn't happen quickly, but he makes what you thought could only end as a terrible situation into something good. Something that you never thought God would Or perhaps even could do. And we always say, oh, God can do anything. But many of us sell him short so often in our lives. If you think about it, most of you sitting in this church today have had Ebenezer moments in your life already. And I know some of you very well, after spending a little time listening to your stories and telling you my stories... I know there are times that some of you probably could not pay the bills. And you thought, how will I ever survive? Or some of you were faced with an illness and you thought, how will I ever live? Some of you in these most recent weeks and months have had COVID come to your house. And you thought, will I live at all? Some of you have stayed up late at night... As we all have, for someone to come home, and perhaps you waited and you waited and you waited. Maybe somebody here, and I know we have many uh, former military, you've had bombs falling around you, or guns pointed at you, or bullets fired. And some of you I know are are truly have lived the life of a first responder, and you have knocked down doors or ran into burning buildings. And that Ebenezer moment, you need to lift up. I got a small Ebenezer moment, but for my life, it became a big thing. When I was, uh, I even called my mother and sister to find this. It's funny, when you remember things when you're 60-something that happened when you're 10, not everybody remembers the same way. My father was a state trooper who had worked for at least five or six years in the Illinois Bureau of Investigation. It was the detective section of the state police. And he went undercover for a period of about three or four months. And we live in extreme southern Illinois. He was trying to uh, help build a case against um, organized crime in the capital of Springfield where there was you know, crap games and gambling and all kinds of, you know, if you can think of all organized things to do. So my dad actually grew, grew, I can remember this, he grew out his sideburns, kind of like Elvis. You know, had the middle old sideburns. And my dad was a far darker-skinned man than I am. But in the sun, he would get even darker. So we didn't know what nationality he was going or ethnicity he was going for. But they changed his name. They gave him a cab to drive. He was driving a cab in Springfield, Illinois. And he was working as a stick man in a, in a crap game. You know, the guy that you know, pulls the, not that any of you have ever done that. You've seen it on TV. It's the guy that pulls the, the dice back. And he was doing that. And he would come home as often as he could. But it wasn't very often. And I can remember he'd come home one weekend. And he was headed back to Springfield. And my mother and my sister and I remember this story. This is where it really gets a little fuzzy. I, just, I thought I was the one who took the first phone call. That someone called and said, where's your dad? And I said, on the way back to Springfield. And, you know, 10 years old, answered the phone. There's only one phone in the house. Well, actually, there's one upstairs, one downstairs, same line, you know, party line. You know, those remember those days? That kind of dial rotor, you know, I'm talking about didn't have the one like this. But, I mean, we weren't much for ahead of that or behind that. Uh, in any event, uh, they said, well, who would know which way he went? And I didn't know. And I, in my mind, I told him to call my mother who worked at the bank. So my mother gets a phone call at the bank and said, which way did your husband go to Springfield? And she said, well, typically he takes 127, Illinois 127, up to a certain point. But other than that, I don't know. And she thought nothing else about it until she told one of her coworkers at work who thought added two plus two and made more than four, made about 100, and said, they're after your, your husband. So she came home. This is way before cell phones, you can imagine. And we spent that night in tears and in prayer. I remember some of you men wear what truly are undershirts some days we call them wife beaters you know i had one of those on and mine was saturated in tears as i recall wanting my dad to call my mom called his riding partner when he was normally working the highway and he said i will get in the car springfield's about four hours from our house i will drive in the squad car to springfield looking for him because they were afraid who to call if this all happened all that was for naught. My dad called the next day. It was somebody that worked with him and they wanted to make sure they stopped him before he got to Springfield so he had some more information on who to talk with and what you know, place they were particularly trying to, to do their raids on. And as I told that story, I am reminded last week, I told another congregant that how many times the worry and anxiety of my life have netted me zero. But my trust in him has always been my gold. Ebenezer moments. You have Ebenezer moments, and it's time for you to lift them up. That was a small one, but it also probably, my kids can understand now, why I always want to know where you are. And why I always tell people, even when I go home and visit my 88-year-old mom, I'll be in by 11 o'clock tonight. I want you to know so no one worries. Make sure you build your Ebenezer moment after you, monument after you have your Ebenezer moment. Build your monument after you've had your moment. When did God help you through that financial crisis? Or when he helped you through that health issue? Or when he helped... Restore you after a broken relationship, a lost job, a car wreck, a child who had wandered from the way you would have them to go. How do you get to those Ebenezer moments? Well, look at the scripture. Verses 1 through 4, it says that uh, they were to turn away from their Baal idols and their false gods. So ask yourself, have I allowed any false gods to take place in my life? Help me have another Ebenezer moment by coming back to you, Lord. Let me have unity of purpose. They gathered together. Ask yourself, how many times do I have discussions of faith outside of Sunday morning? Are you working in a small group, discipling with another Christian, keeping each other accountable, studying, learning in your faith? And also, are you praying for those Ebenezer moments? Ask God to keep your eyes open. As I said, King James says, Hitherto, Charles Spurgeon, who is one of my favorite preachers, although I have never preached his sermons because they're impossible to preach, as it is to preach anybody else's sermon. But he takes a, uh, when he preached this one verse, he uses that phrase, hitherto, and talks about it like being a hand hitherto, as in whether it was a year ago or 20 years ago or 70 years ago, you have been my help and points forward to the anticipation you will continue to be my help. You know, someone who says hitherto means there's something going to happen after. Not only happen then, but it's going to happen in the future. In fact, he talks about in his little sermon, and he's not very much on illustrations. So that's why I probably don't use his a lot. But one of his, as he talked about this. He said, it's like looking back at a pathway or a road lined with trees. And some of you have been to old homes that have trees that have been built on each side of the road. And the trees grow up together and they almost touch. And he said, they become like a temple, if you will. With faith and grace and mercy being those trees that reach together. The the greenery and the branches being all that that God has done for you. And he says, and imagine, and this is where he really stretches it. Imagine the birds that are in those trees shouting, hitherto you have been my help. Hitherto. So think about that. God, you have been our help. In ages past, like the song says. But Lord, you will continue to be our hope. So when we do get old, when we do get ill, when we do not have enough money, when we do have trials and tribulations, you will continue to be our hope. So let me have an Ebenezer moment today, Lord. And let's say you've been my hope. So, Samuel took a stone, set it between Mitzvah and Shin. Uh, The one word means, um, shin means tooth, which I think is interesting. The other one means uh, lookout point. Uh, We don't really know where it is, but obviously it was the place that he wanted to say, this is where we defeated the Philistines, and let's lift up this stone. How many times we have walked on by stones, and we should have remembered what they were about. And that's his final point, is living an Ebenezer life. Ebenezer life. Stones are used throughout the Bible to illustrate God's faithfulness. Joshua 4 talks about when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and after they got across he said you know get a guy from each one of the tribes get 12 stones and we're going to make a little monument here that when the priest with the ark got ready to step into the water it was dry and, and they walked across. So it's a reminder of God's protection, his deliverance. Isaiah 28 says that the Messiah will be the cornerstone. We sang cornerstone song earlier today. Ephesians 2, Paul says that Christ is the cornerstone. And we preached our way through First Peter a few months ago. And in that second chapter, verse 5, we find that we are living stones gathered to build the temple of God. A spiritual house. So let each of us as followers of Christ live Ebenezer lives. Lives that are of hope and of help for one another. Pointing to the past but also pointing to the future. That God is our help. Now, do you ever stop and read the historic road signs Is that just because uh, I'm raised by a policeman and history major? I like reading that stuff. There are 16,000 of them in the state of Texas. This one is the closest one to the church. Show this one. Right there in Old Town, Helotus, is a historical marker. 16,000 historical sites where people are remembering what has happened in this state. How many Christians are there in this state that should likewise be markers of God's help and his deliverance? I read this week there are 2,000 churches in San Antonio alone. How many markers, how many Ebenezer, living Ebenezers do you pass each day? Let me show you this one. And, and I'm trying to think if I've ever told you this particular historic monument that's in outside of my little town. King Neptune. King Neptune was a pig. <laughs> I know some of you here around grow, grow pigs, you know, or had pigs for 4-H and all the other things, you know. Uh, that was a, uh, a man from my hometown named Lingle. There are still Lingles around. He was a Navy recruiter during World War II. He got this pig, and they auctioned that pig off. You see at the bottom how many millions of dollars worth of war bonds. You see it, it's 19 million. Someone said it's like 200 million dollars in, you know, 2021 money. Selling that pig, and then you donate it back. Sell that pig, donate it back. But there's a monument to a pig in my town. Surely we can be monuments to our Savior wherever we go. Far more important than pigs. No disrespect to those who have raised pigs. What about your life? Have you been an Ebenezer of help, or have you been an Ebenezer like Scrooge of help? The Ebenezer life doesn't mean you will be weighed down either. Think about that. You know, stones are a weight. And I came across this illustration this week. Uh, Norman Wright, in fact, I bought the book. Anytime I find an illustration, I think I need to buy the book. I bought the book uh, called The Perfect Catch. It's a story of fishing, and it's a Christian book that has plenty of illustrations. And in it, he talks about three men that he encountered. And, of course, this is a preacher story. I always introduce preacher story. Um, These three men had uh, bags, two bags attached to them. And he doesn't really illustrate it that well in the sense of what kind of bags they were. But in my mind, I'm thinking of like potato sack bags. And they both had, all three of these men had a bag on the front and a bag on the back. And he asked the first man, what's in your bag? He said, well, in, in the front bag, he said, are all the bad things that have ever happened to me. He said, you know, anybody ever said bad about me anytime I got hurt, anytime my feelings were stepped on, that's what's in the front bag. And he said, what's in the back bag? He said, all the good things that ever happened to me. He said, they're back there. And he said, but you know, at times I have to stop and look at all the bad things. And he said, it slows me down on the journey, but I I have to look at those things because I, I, I can't give those things up. So he talked to the second man who had these two bags. He said, what's in your two bags? He says, well, in my two bags, he said, all, all the good things are here in the front. He said, you know, all the people who love me, all the people who said I was great, all the people who said I'd be a success, he said, and on the back are all the people who were the naysayers, all the people who were mean to me, all the people who hurt me in school, all the people who wanted to fire me or talk bad about me at work. He said, so often I just take the stuff out of the front bag, and he said, and think about how good I am and how good I could have been and how good somebody thought I was. He said, but, but I don't get very far on my journey. So he looked at the third man. He said, what's in your two bags? He said, well, in the front bag, he said, is every good thing I've ever thought about anybody. And also in there was every good thing that anybody ever thought about me. And he says, "It, it, it is such a big bag. He said, it works like almost like a sail on a sailboat. And it propels me as I go through life. And he said, man, that's great. He said, what's in the bag in the back? He goes, I cut the bottom out of that one. He said, I put anything bad that happens in me, he said, because I can't carry it. Let it fall out of that bag and keep on going. And I think to myself, how many of us are more like the other two guys. We keep carrying all the bad things like these stones that are weighing us down. we got to let it go because God is our help. And we must lead this Ebenezer life together. Our lives are stories. As my mother-in-law would say, you may be the only Bible somebody ever sees or reads, right? Living stones. With a testimony, good and bad, it's still yours. Last illustration, and a 9-11 one. If you, in that video, saw that Rolex watch... Anybody recall that Rolex watch? And maybe you know the story of that Rolex watch. Todd Beamer, 32 years old, was on the flight that ended up going into the ground, where they actually overcame the uh, terrorists or got into enough of a struggle that it diverted, did not go into the capital, which is what it was supposedly planned to go into. And as I, most guys in the military know, he's the one who's known for Let's Roll. He was able to make a phone call on that flight. And those of you who are younger may not know, but there was a day when they had phones on the back and you could slide a credit card through it and you could make a, a phone call from the air. Well, he couldn't get through and actually got a lady who put him onto her supervisor and then they talked together. And as I learned more about him and read up on him this week, he, he was a Wheaton graduate, which is a very prestigious Christian school in, in Chicago. And uh, he asked her after he told her all these things, and very calm, he said, "Would you pray the Lord's prayer with me?" And she did. And he also said they had two boys, his wife was pregnant, and who would later be a daughter. But uh, he he just he knew that his end was coming. But uh, here's his dad talking about him. So.
1: was on the West Coast. Uh, Didn't realize what had happened until that afternoon. Had no idea that our son Todd was on an airplane. I thought he was in Italy. I was off by a day. Um, You know, we kind of define our history now, don't we, as pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Well, here are some Here's some bits of a wristwatch, And it's function is supposed to be to tell time. And it was a good watch, it did its job very well. Uh, but it doesn't tell what time it is anymore. Uh, but what it does tell is what time it was. Uh, it says it's the 11th and so this uh, this marks the time that the successful counterattack on flight 93 ended.
0: You need to ask yourself today and I think it's interesting he says how there's pre-9/11 post-9/11 you could say the same with the Christian walk there are times that what your life was like before you knew Christ. And after you have known Christ and how you live your life. So will your life mark the times when God has been your help? Will you be this Ebenezer stone of help? Will you let your life be a stone for Christ? A stone that says he is my hope. He is my cornerstone. He is my rock. Will you lift him up today? Stand with me, please, as we pray. Our fathers, we come to a time of invitation in this service. I know that the event that uh, Samuel and those that he led came out of the result of your deliverance. Nothing really they had done on their own, short of their repentance and their turning back to you, made this into an Ebenezer moment. And likewise, Lord, each one here today can do nothing except through Christ Jesus to have that Ebenezer moment. If we'll only confess our sins, turn from our wicked ways, let go of the things that compete with our heart and with our time and with our lives from you, and let you be victorious in all things. Then we can understand, then we can become, and then we can lift up the Ebenezer stone. You are our help. You are our salvation. You are a loving God that longs to have restored relationships with your children. So I pray in this time of invitation, if there's one here today who's never come to know Jesus, they've never said, I got to let go of the way I've been living and live for him. Like Robert Robinson, who could write a song at 23 that we're still singing 250 years later. Help us to lift up our Ebenezer to you, Lord. Let this be the day in which some man, some woman, some boy or girl says, thank you for your help and let me follow you. Whatever decision there is to be made, the doors of the church are open. We ask your people to respond. We pray it all in Jesus' name.